Welcome to Insight Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting, a global strategy consultancy that helps business leaders seize competitive advantage and amplify growth. Insight Exchange is our forum dedicated to the free, open, and unbiased exchange of the insights and ideas that are driving business into the future. We exchange insights with the brightest minds of the day, the most daring innovators, and the doers who are right now rebuilding the world around us. Hello, everyone. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. In this episode, we'll be discussing gene therapies and building sustainable strategies to commercialize these products. 2020 started with a flurry of activity in the space, and there's a lot to cover. Today, we'll be going behind the scenes of a highly exclusive gathering that LEK and Real Endpoints recently hosted in Phoenix, where we brought together 50 influential individuals, including gene therapy executives, payer, CMS leaders, and other key stakeholders in the gene therapy market. What made this gathering unique was its intimate nature, deliberately kept small to encourage candid conversation. The meeting room itself required no microphones, did not allow slides, and featured no formal speeches. The distinctions between panelists and the audience blurred, setting the stage for an engaging, lively, and sometimes controversial conversation. In this podcast, we'll aim to provide you with some of the key takeaways from these discussions. Join us as we unravel the insights and valuable perspectives that were shared during this exclusive gathering and view a glimpse into the future of sustainable commercial strategies in the world of gene therapies. I'm Matt Mancuso, a managing director at LEK Consulting, and I'll host today's discussion. I was once a scientist by training, and I lead much of our firm's advanced modalities work. I'm really excited about the amount of new therapies and technologies on the way for patients and the major needs that they address. I'm joined today by one of my colleagues, Alex, and two of our friends from Real Endpoints, Roger and Ellen. Alex, would you mind introducing yourself real quick? And Roger, Ellen, thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been great to see you guys again since the conference a few months ago. Would you introduce yourselves as well? And, and when you go through, could you also provide a little background on Real Endpoints? Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to start us off. Uh, I'm Alex Guth. I'm a managing director with LEK. I lead much of our work in, in pricing and market access uh, for biopharma. I'm also a, a virologist by training, so I'm always excited to talk gene therapy and cell therapy. I love to see viruses or at least parts of them at work for good in the world, finally. I'm Ellen Licking. I'm a VP of Client Services here at Real Endpoints. Uh, Real Endpoints is a market access consultancy. We focus in three domains. One is market access strategy. Another is contracting strategy and services. And the third area is patient support. And I think we'll talk about how all of those come together in the gene therapy space today. And I'm Roger Longman. Um, Matt, thanks so much for having uh, Ellen and me uh, on the uh on the show today, uh, really pleased to, uh, to be here. My background is, frankly, as a reporter uh, in the pharmaceutical and biotech worlds. Started a company uh, focused on that, and then um, started Real Endpoints, where I'm chairman, uh, several years ago to focus on the issues around um, how to pay for innovative therapies. Great, thank you all so much, Roger Ellen. Again, thanks for coming on. It's great having some specialists in the commercial and reimbursement space. Uh, as we, we chat today and go through this meeting and what's happened since. So I appreciate the introductions. I mean, since we hosted this meeting in May, I, I've been kind of surprised by the amount of movement in the gene therapy field. 
you know, we've seen something like three major approvals under launches, depending on how you count by product and by geography and whatnot. Uh, we've seen a ton of new data clinically, commercially. What, what's changed, in your opinion, since the meeting? I, I, I guess, I, I don't know, maybe Ellen, over to you first, but, you know, what have you observed or what's going on since May and, and how's the world changed? When we were getting ready for the meeting in May, we knew that 2023 was going to be a big year for gene therapy. But I don't think we knew how active the spring was going to be. But I think one of the things that we saw in the three approvals that happened since May, is just the scale of diseases that can be treated with gene therapy. You know, we've got uh, dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa. We've got Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, hemophilia A. Um, you know, that's generating a lot of excitement about how this new modality can actually be applied to um, help treat diseases where a lot of the treatment has been symptomatic, right? On the flip side, though, I think we have this environment where we've had some gene therapies that were approved in 2022, where we haven't necessarily seen the uptake from a patient perspective that was anticipated, at least by Wall Street. And so it's a little bit bipolar in that regard, in that um, we're not seeing this uptake in terms of the addressable market that was anticipated. And for companies, it really underscores like how long the commercial road is for them, that, that that approval is a first step in a longer series of steps in building a commercially successful product. Yeah, I completely agree with Ellen. It's been an exciting time in the last few months, but it's really been a story in gene therapy of high highs and low lows uh, this year. As we said, the, the pace of new approvals has been unprecedented. At the same time, uh, on the low side, we've seen numerous notifications that companies laying off employees. The financial environment isn't helping. A number of companies that were originally very well-funded have shut down. You see things like summation, CODA has gone through this. Others are, are teetering on the edge of a shutdown for lack of funding. You know, one driver is certainly uh, technology and, and some of those platforms uh, struggling, but there's also, from a market perspective, an unwillingness to fund some early stage companies, particularly in categories where competitors are further along. Alex, to build on that, I think one of the concerns is that it's not a scientific issue that they're wrestling with. It really is a commercial challenge, right? Um, and and that was a key topic that we talked through at this meeting in May, is, is thinking through what are the different elements you have to have in the roadmap um, to drive that commercial success. The challenges were anticipated, but... Gene therapy manufacturers are really feeling the scale of them uh, just now. And that, that really ranges across multiple stakeholders. It's building the infrastructure, doing the patient finding, building comfort uh, amongst physicians for this very new modality. And then, of course, there's the question of payment, the large, very large upfront payments, how to think about reimbursement uh, and, and rebating uh, based on these therapies that can have efficacy for, for many, many years. And that was a, uh, a key topic during the meeting. Ellen, Alex, to those points, you know, on one hand, it's amazing how much has changed since just our May meeting. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I, I was looking at an old 
set of slides the other day, and I, I had a, a 2019 forecast in front of me of the gene therapy market, and it was estimated at something like $7 billion by 2023. Uh, and we're, we're not there today, right? And, and some of that was due to clinical and manufacturing challenges, and not to mention there was a pandemic in between. But, you know, even with the recent approvals now, uptake's still slower. I, I mean, I hear you both talking about the commercial side. Is it, do you think we've kind of solved some of these clinical and manufacturing challenges at this point? And really, it's a commercial play now? Or, or kind of what's the state of the field, in your opinion? I think that what Alex and Ellen have already said is, is true, of course. The uptake has been slow. There are certainly clinical issues. Uh, scientific issues that have slowed things down. There's certainly manufacturing issues that have slowed things down more on, I think, the uh, cell therapy than on the gene therapy side. But if I'm to look at what, you know, what has caused this slower than expected uptake, I think about three or four different factors. The first one is, is what Ellen referred to, and that is patient identification. Finding truly eligible patients in the first place, which is a lot more difficult than, than many people have expected, certainly than I expected. And, and then finding those people who are actually willing to undergo the treatment, which sometimes includes hospitalization, includes long-distance travel to the centers of excellence. Sometimes it just simply means that sometimes people are just concerned about having their genes messed with. Um, particularly if there are uh, pretty good, certainly less complex therapies available. Hemophilia is probably the best example where you've got therapies like Hemlibra uh, from Roche. Uh, you've got uh, next generation factor replacements like Altuvio uh, from Santa Fe. And those do a pretty good job pretty conveniently. So there's that kind of competition. The second big issue is, again, something that I don't think everybody recognizes, that a lot of these people, uh, a lot of the patients, are in difficult-to-reach populations. So if you think about sickle cell, that's largely a Medicaid population, or it's, uh, Medicaid is a big portion of it. And folks historically mistrust the medical system because the medical system has, in fact, failed them. So that's the second issue. Ellen and, and Alex have both mentioned reimbursement, which is a particular problem. So there are some intriguing solutions to that, to those issues, but it's still early days. And finally, back to the provider side, there's the centers of excellence challenge. You have to get the centers up and running. There are economic issues to be worked out with payers. It's not just the, the manufacturer that's a problem. You know, some of these centers of excellence want what are essentially admin fees, which double or more the cost of the drug. And then there are certain providers which are competitive with, uh, with the gene therapy providers. So for example, in hemophilia, again, um, you have the hemophilia treatment centers, which have a significant financial incentive to keep the patients in the HDCs on factor replacement. Roger, I, I think if I try and summarize what you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm hearing big issues across what I think of are, are probably the three or four different key customers in the healthcare ecosystem. You've got challenges along the patient axis, challenges along the payer-employer axis, and then challenges along the provider-center-of-excellent axis, which we, we could either call one or two different axes. 
Do you have any feel for which of these has been the biggest challenge so far? In the launches so far, I think it's patient identification. And patient identification, broadly considered, finding the patient, finding the eligible patients, finding the patients willing to do something. Roger, I'd like to pick up on that because that patient willingness is the one that maybe caught me most by surprise. And, and I think that's true of a lot in the field. You know, I'm a scientist by training, the data on gene therapy is often really compelling, something we're very excited about. But you hit on something that I think is underappreciated, which is that to some of the specific patient populations that are being targeted, they really have been failed by the medical uh, system in the past. You mentioned sickle cell, medical equity, for those patients has been an enormous challenge uh, for you know, all the whole modern history in the development of therapies for sickle cell. You know, hemophilia can be easy to forget, but that is a, a patient population that was absolutely decimated by HIV uh, in the 80s and early 90s. And the scars from that, uh, they last a long time. And so for, I've had an opportunity recently to, to speak with patients from, from both of those groups. And at times I've been surprised the degree to which there remains really significant trepidation about uh, new modalities, even as there's great enthusiasm on the scientific and prescriber communities. Yeah. And it, so, Alex, I'm glad you mentioned that. If we're being really honest, these therapies have a lot of uncertainty associated with them, right? There's not long-term data around the durability of these therapies. There's also the fact that we're in the midst of this renaissance, so we're seeing new science in terms of the backbones that are used to deliver them. But right now, some of those therapies, if you get it now, you're not going to be able to get one in the future. So Patients are also having to weigh this very difficult choice. I'm stable on these other drugs that control my symptoms pretty well. The field is evolving quickly. And there might be something better in the future. But if I take an option that turns out to be not quite so good now, I'm not going to be able to get that option. And so I think it creates a, a natural hesitancy for patients and then the, the providers who are advising them. Yeah. A, a few things to unpack there. I think, Alex, on, on the hemophilia point, I, I mean, I just, it's amazing to think about how much distrust there, there can be in some of these populations. I think to Roger's point on sickle cell, you know, that, that one comes up often, but there was something like 5,000 patients who had contaminated blood products in the hemophilia community, if I recall correctly. And when you consider there are only tens of thousands of them, I mean, the impact is tremendous. I mean, Ellen, to the points you were just making, do, do you have any feel for what it would take to get patient acceptance higher? If it's a data issue and it's going to take time, I think you're going to see adoption in the patients who are the sickest and have the severest forms of disease who aren't being well controlled because they need other options. But I think one of the things companies who are developing these therapies need to do is think about their patient support almost on steroids. Those things that make sure that they can get to the treatment center, they have access to transportation and an appropriate kind of work environment that allows them to take time off for the therapy or allows them to take time off for the therapy when, when their children or loved ones are having the therapy. Those are all these kinds of things that support the access to care that aren't typically thought about as healthcare, but we know based on lots of other studies um, elsewhere really impact access to care. And so, you know, take a page from some of the work that's been done in the rare disease community where they're 
you know, going out and finding the individual patients and thinking through holistically what they need to be able to access the therapy. That's probably something that's going to have to be done. And frankly, at the price tags the therapies are being offered, you can see why stakeholders across the healthcare ecosystem would expect those services to be on board. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of good points in there, Ellen. One that just stuck with me was the fact that a lot of these decisions are being made by caregivers for junior patients. Uh, and, and I think maybe one example more than others where that's the case is, is Zolgensma, of course, uh, where the patients are quite young. And one of the things that struck me from the conversations at the meeting was that a, a good number of these patients may be ending back up uh, on other therapies. You know, I think of gene therapy as having the promise of being one and done and are we really observing that today? I, what's going on in reality with uh, spinal muscular atrophy? What's going on in, in hemophilia? I think for Zogensma, it's pretty clear it's not one and done. You're seeing um, patients on Spinraza or Everisd. Um, and, you know, that's concerning to stakeholders, both the patients and the providers and the payers. From a patient perspective, what happens if you're on a therapy that's not truly one and done. And because of an immune reaction, you can't get something better in the future, right? That, that creates that hesitation and a natural desire for a wait and see approach. Then on the payer side, you, I think we all have to acknowledge that one of the challenges is with gene therapies, payers have been sort of told that, that the value of these therapies is that they are a one and done situation. So the price tag for some of these is actually worth it because you're not going to be on other expensive therapies in perpetuity. But that math no longer works if they're going on expensive therapies in, a, in two or three years. And so you're seeing payers really try and push discussions around what are alternative value-based agreements, whether they're outcomes-based agreements or alternative finance arrangements that can help them manage the uncertainty around the durability. And that was a topic that came up repeatedly in our May meeting. At a certain threshold, does a value-based agreement need to be part of the equation for these gene therapies until we've got more data that really shows that durability? Ellen, thanks for sharing all that. I'm, I'm going to park the value-based agreement point for a second. I want to come back to that in more detail. But Quickly, before we go there, Alex, you had um, you'd mentioned to me the other day something about the patient switching dynamics in, in hemophilia and patients going back on factor. I don't remember the specifics, but it felt similar to this Zilgensma situation. Can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. This concern about durability and, and the addition of um, further therapy is already impacting how these therapies are being evaluated. So, you know, the recent example I was mentioning was in in hemophilia, Biomarin's gene therapy in hemophilia A. Some background in hemophilia efficacy is measured by bleed rates, and, and patients on gene therapy typically report a, a bleed requiring treatment about once per year. However, in about 12% of patients during the trial, uh, another therapy was used uh, after gene therapy as a, a supplement when the gene therapy's efficacy waned. You know, in a traditional trial, you'd note the discontinuation and switch to another therapy, and that's it. That's the uh, end of the efficacy evaluation. But in, in gene therapy, the FDA has said, 
Well, these patients have received the gene therapy infusion. They're still in the trial. They're still being evaluated for efficacy. And what's more, since we can't know how much they would have bled without the additional therapy, the FDA is required uh, that, uh, that we count theoretical bleeds, the bleeds that they may have received, um, if not for the additional therapy, and that be imputed in the analysis. So for the 12% or so of patients who use combo therapy, they were counted as though they were experiencing nearly 40 bleeds per year for any time they were on a, a secondary therapy. Um, you know, when you compare that to the actual bleed rate, which was about one per year, you can understand the outsized impact this potential for, for multi-agent use has on reported efficacy for trials. So in the end, as a result of this statistical analysis on this 12% of patients that used another therapy, the total efficacy reported on, uh, on the gene therapies label, which included these imputed bleeds, is about two and a half times worse than what was published in the clinical trials, which only counted the, the bleeds those patients actually experienced. It's, it's an enormous penalty uh, to the reported efficacy that stems from using another agent in a minority of patients. So clearly the FDA is very attuned to the potential that gene therapy is being pitched as a single agent, but in practice ends up in combination with other therapies. That's really interesting, Alex. I don't know that I've seen that before. Ha have any of you guys encountered that in other situations? No, I actually think it's new and I think it's going to be a real challenge for gene therapy companies, especially if, if we go back to value-based agreements for a minute, we think about how they're constructed because typically one of the ways they'll be constructed is, is using the failure rates in the label to get at what kind of a payment or other metric you would use to monitor with payers? Ellen, building on that a bit, you know, we've talked about this, you know, value-based agreements that may result in uh, rebates if a, if a gene therapy isn't effective. And I think in discussions with many you know, gene therapy makers, that's something that they're prepared for and thinking about. But ultimately, they don't want to lose payment because, say, a physician wanted to use two therapies. Absolutely. And I think what it also will do for gene therapy companies is as they're thinking about the stakeholders they're working with, they're going to be looking at the providers and how they vet the providers. And this makes the decisions about which centers of excellence even more important because they're going to want to make sure that protocols being followed are the ones that were studied in the trials and have the most data around them because that's where they have the most data themselves about how the product works. And otherwise, there's a risk they would be taking on that they have no control over as the companies. That's great. Thank you, guys. I, I think I'm probably the least deep of all of us on this call when it comes to the, the payer and reimbursement side. You know, one of the things that caught my attention when we were in Phoenix was hearing how CMS had changed how it's calculating best price to enable VBAs more broadly. You know, I, I kind of expected value-based agreements to be growing, but I, I didn't know what was slowing it down and, and what was really happening. You know, taking the conversation you're having around the labels and building on it, just broadly, can, can you help summarize for me what's going on with value-based agreement? A lot. But at the macro level, I think what you need to understand is what Alan has articulated quite well, which is how do you deal with the uncertainty of efficacy or of durability? And how do you mitigate those uncertainties? 
usually that's going to be some kind of an innovative contract, some kind of a performance guarantee. Now, it is true that ultra rare, ultra, ultra rare uh, gene therapies are probably not going to require a, a performance based contract in order to get coverage. But to your point, Matt, at the meeting, it was pretty clear from the payers they expect VBAs, that those VBAs are going to be table stakes. The question is, is what flavor of VBA? Um, you mentioned just now the, uh, the idea of, uh, of, a, of a provider wanting to use two therapies. If the gene therapy doesn't work, he wants to be able to add on something else. Well, there are now structures, risk-sharing structures, which kind of allow that, one of which is, is uh, the warranty structure, which is, in effect, an insurance policy uh, that the manufacturer buys through a third party and which can then um, uh, be structured to allow all sorts of uh, or a variety of, uh, uh, of different remedies, including the remedy of paying for an additional therapy if the first if the gene therapy isn't uh, isn't perfectly effective, these warranties also address another issue which you were getting at, Matt, which is around Medicaid best price, because a warranty is an insurance policy. Effectively, the Medicaid best price is determined not by the total dollar value of the remedy, but in fact by the premium that the manufacturer pays to the third party insurer. There are other kinds of structures as well, and I don't want to simply limit it to to warranties, which are still relatively rare in the marketplace. Um, but the uh, uh, but the point is is that there are uh, structures which can be used to uh, to address those uh, those original uncertainties. The other thing that's important here is that the government, the federal government, is increasingly interested in in VBAs, as you point out, Matt. Uh, and as uh, was discussed at the meeting by, indeed, CMS, there is a, a, a major experiment going on now uh, in which CMMI is trying to structure a way of itself being the negotiator of VBAs for any and all state Medicaid organizations. Uh, that would solve certain problems. It would make, the, the idea would be, uh, can I, uh, address the the complexity uh, and cost issues for Medicaid of doing VBAs, which are challenging, uh, with a quid pro quo from uh, manufacturers. So you get an efficient process for faster coverage in Medicaid, which one should note is a major market in gene therapy, and that would be in return for meaningful risk shares. There's there's a lot of work to do here. I don't want to pretend that this is a done deal. The states have to want to go along. The rich states have to want to be able to work with the poorer states. The pharmaceutical companies have to want to go along. Uh, and they are uh, increasingly skeptical of um, government involvement in pricing issues, such as value-based agreements, uh, most obviously given uh, the reaction they've had to the IRA negotiation uh, program. Roger, if you if you had to estimate, you know, what percentage of patients we might see covered on VBAs in the future, just give any sort of directional idea to, to me. 
you know, is it is it going to be used in a minority of situations, the the majority, the vast majority? What what's the future look like in your view? In my view, when it comes to gene therapy, it will be the majority of patients. Indeed, the vast majority of patients. Granted, the gene therapies are used as uh, come out and are and are uh, adopted with the uh, with the vigor that I think they should be. I do expect it across all channels. I think that certainly the Medicaid uh, payers that we have talked to are extremely interested in risk sharing agreement. Commercial is obvious. Uh, they they're very familiar with VBAs now and uh, are uh, uh, are sort of demanding that idea uh, from manufacturers as we speak. I, I don't think that there's a payer that we have talked with in a commercial insurance program that hasn't said we want risk-sharing programs in gene therapy. That's really interesting. It sounds like an awesome way to align value to, to what we're actually delivering here, or maybe said another way, put our money where our mouth is. One of the things that's interesting about CMMI's initiative is it shows the challenges that we're trying to overcome that we've actually already talked about in this podcast. One of the reasons this is a Medicaid initiative is there's a great concern that there's this new modality that patients will not have access to because of the limitations of Medicaid state budgets and that it's going to actually increase um, inequities in care. So I think this is one element. I think the second element is the nascent state of the infrastructure required to really do VBAs, right? And I think, well, I agree with Roger that we will get to a point where VBAs are used will be a majority. I think the challenge is we don't really have an infrastructure to do this well and do it repeatedly. And we heard that at the meeting as well. If you think about where we see BBA is working well. It's where you can track them with a claim because we have a very good claim infrastructure. So that's one of the ones where hemophilia is a great one for a value-based agreement because there's a claim when there's a bleed. But in other cases, um, we don't have those claims data. And so, you know, one of the things that companies and payers who are interested in this space are really thinking about is how they can be using claims data and eventually then get to some of the more outcomes data they would like to be measuring that are difficult to get right now the way our system is set up. And we still have a ways to go for that to really come into being. That's true, Ellen. Um, the one caveat I'd have on that is that these are still rare diseases. And rare diseases are, uh, by definition, easier to get clinical data from because there are fewer patients and fewer providers providing those uh, therapies. So it's not, uh, it's not the block that it would be for much more prevalent conditions, uh, hypertension or diabetes or things like that, where uh, insurers just cannot get anything, cannot, cannot really do uh, value-based agreements without anything other than uh, a claims metric. But we do have gene therapies in those more prevalent areas that will be coming we in the not-too-distant future, right? You're right. Yep. I think it's a great goal. I think one of the key things is, is structuring BBAs to think about how you get rid of a claim, right? And then that becomes the, the success right now. 
um, but then moving towards what is the infrastructure that allows that sharing of the more clinical data. And frankly, right now, that's one of the reasons, Roger, we're seeing warranties as as coming to be a more exciting option in certain cases because you don't need the claims data. You, you can get it through the provider attestation of what the clinical value of the product was or wasn't. That's true. You know, the, the other place I would look, Matt, is what's happening around accelerated approval and the whole dialogue we've seen around accelerated approval, right? And we know, in general, um, payers are not big fans of drugs approved under an accelerated approval channel because they don't necessarily have the data that shows the value. And I think depending on the price and budget impact for gene therapies that are approved under that channel, you're going to see a push from payers for some kind of value-based agreement or risk share. That's really exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for that coverage on, on value-based agreements. You know, the, the meeting just continues to get me excited about what's going on in the, in the gene therapy field. And uh, honestly, I, I don't even know how to put bounds on what that means. You know, th there's probably something like 2,000 in vivo or ex vivo genetically modified therapies in development today. I think the excitement's there. I mean, no doubt our meeting focused a lot on the emerging commercial challenges, but it felt like a lot of the earlier clinical and manufacturing challenges are, are fading into the past. As we kind of get near the end of our time here, I was hoping to open it up to each of you one more time. I, I guess a quick question for you all. Where do you see the market going uh, over the near term? And, and uh, in just a, a simple, you know, one word answer to, to the next one, are you optimistic about the next few years of gene therapy here? Do you think we have more hurdles in the future? Or Absolutely. I'll give more than one word. I'll start with optimistic. Um, but what I'm optimistic about is that we are going to advance enough that we can face some of these hurdles, right? Some of the development challenges that have prevented us from reaching these commercial questions in the past have been resolved. You know, the, the pace of development and approval, I think, is really staggering and thrilling. You know, we talked earlier about the multiple approvals that there have been in just the last few months, and the upcoming calendar is is filling up with uh, with upcoming uh, FDA meetings and, and data. One element that is supportive of this is the FDA has been amenable to clinical trial designs which permit uh, feasible study in these rare disease populations, including permitting external controls like natural history studies uh, in lieu of, of just randomized study design. Uh, at the same time, the ramp up for commercialization for many gene therapies, as Roger discussed, has been slow. You know, the elements we've talked about, patient finding, building physician comfort, payer contracting, those have all proven to be, you know, challenging in a very new modality. And to my mind, you know, for companies that are launching uh, a gene therapy, this creates a real strategic challenge. Theoretically, there's a huge first mover advantage. Uh, for now, gene therapy is a, a one-shot treatment, and so first entrants are motivated to get in there to address the prevalent population before anyone else can enter. It's a race to be first like we saw in HCB a decade ago. But in practice, gene therapy developers, they are squeezed. The, the commercialization, standard operating procedures, the infrastructure, those are slow to get up and running on one end, while the pace of development means competitors in, in many of these diseases may be soon nipping at your heels and they can benefit from the uh, market development you're investing in. So 
companies are really having to to rethink their approach pre-approval uh, to ensure they're well positioned to have that rapid uptake. I agree with so much of what you said there. I am also optimistic about the field for two reasons. One, I think from a technology perspective and and if we're thinking about a manufacturing perspective, new technologies are coming on board that particularly for the ultra rare diseases will make it more affordable to create therapies. And I think because of the original price tag, companies potentially thought of access to gene therapy as purely a payer issue. And as Roger has noted, there's this big demand issue and they need to get creative there. And, you know, I would just say that companies, when they're working with the payers, the earlier they start to find out what it is that the payer's true concern is, and they start thinking about how they're designing their clinical trials to address that concern so they come to market with the data um, and are prepared potentially to do risk shares to mitigate any uncertainty, that will stand them in good stead. And so we won't necessarily be talking about payer access issues in the same way we have been today. You know what? As I listen to to Ellen and Alex, I agree. I mean, they're absolutely right. I think that that anybody in this business has got to be optimistic because the challenges are so huge that you just give up if you weren't uh, positive about uh, the potential uh, for what we're doing. But weirdly, I I also see uh, a kind of positivism or, or opportunity in the challenge that we've seen. Now, Alex pointed out that this is a first mover business, and, and he's absolutely right. The issue is that if, in fact, we've had these problems so far with uptake, with label changes, with payers, it sort of makes me wonder, have investors and companies moved a little too quickly to say, well, if we're a fast follower, we're not actually going to make it uh, because the first guys will take this, uh, this market for one-and-done therapies. My sense is, is that, in fact, there is going to be room uh, and maybe more room than expected for fast followers or even not-so-fast followers, uh, depending on how long this, um, this uptake challenge takes. And in fact, I just saw that, uh, uh, that Roche Spark is, uh, is going to be moving ahead with uh, one of its hemophilia therapies, which frankly, I hadn't expected them to do. And my bet is, is that we're going to see other companies kind of reevaluating maybe their first uh, decisions about um, moving ahead with uh, programs that they were possibly going to cancel because of this first mover issue. So, optimistic, absolutely. That's excellent. To Alex, Ellen, Roger, thank you all so much for your time today. It was great getting everyone together and being back in touch since our meeting out in Arizona. I'm looking to looking forward to more of it in the future. Uh, is there anything any of you would like to add as we close out here? I think you've done a wonderful job, uh, Matt, in, uh, in, in hurting us all together and, uh, and eliciting some really uh, interesting insights at least from Alex and Alex. I just think we may need to make this weekly at the rate the field is evolving. It seems like there's a new, a new approval and a big new study every couple of days. So to be continued for certain. Absolutely. Well, to the listeners, uh, we're happy to provide more detailed discussions on requests 
We invite you to connect with us. Uh, Alex and I are here at LEK. We have extensive experience in providing strategic support to a number of different biopharmaceutical and biotech companies across a, a, a wide variety of situations. On the commercial side, uh, over at Real Endpoints, I'm, I'm sure Roger and Ellen would welcome any calls, so please feel free to reach out. Thank you all for listening today. Appreciate the time. And uh, to anyone who was with us in Arizona, thanks for the insights and the conversation. It was great, uh, great being in touch with you all. Take care. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us today at the Insight Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting. Links to resources mentioned in this podcast can be found in the show notes. Please subscribe or follow for future episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, we encourage you to submit your suggestions for future insights online at lek.com.